Let's pray together. Oh God, we have come into your chambers and we have bowed in your presence because you are still holy. You are sovereign. And oh Lord, if today you would bring to us a word straight from your mind and heart to ours. We know what time it is. In the light of that, please speak to us through Holy Scripture. In the name of Jesus, Amen. I want to share with you this morning a question that I have been wrestling over now for several years. I say wrestling over it because as I would go through Scripture and study and examine this question, I'd come across a writer, not in Scripture, but a contemporary writer who also wrestling with this question would declare that the answer pretty much has to be yes. And then I would go on studying Scripture and I would come across another author who just as categorically would pronounce that the answer is no. It's one of those yes or no questions. About four weeks ago, in my personal study, an answer seemed to emerge. And what I'd like to do today is have you follow the journey to that answer. The question, that's the key, the question. In fact, the question is so important, it's right there at the top of your study guide. Would you take your new study guide out, please? That is in your worship bulletin. Our ushers are ready to put a study guide in your hand. If you came in with several of you and one of you grabbed a bulletin, then would you hold a hand up because there's a, there is some dynamite material here in this teaching that I earnestly hope you'll get a hold of. And so don't be embarrassed. Hold your hand up. Those of you who are watching on television right now, let me put our website on the screen for you www.pmchurch.org, pioneermemorialchurch.org. Go onto that website. By the way, this is the fifth and final portion of our little mini-series within a series. If you click on to the John the Baptist Generation Part 5, the John the Baptist Generation Part 5, you'll find the study guide. Just was uh, just got a letter from one of our... our uh, Long-distance worshipers up in Grand Rapids who, when, the, when that uh, website went on, immediately went to, uh, to the computer, a couple mouse clicks away, and actually went through the study guide with us. So you can do the same right there where you are. The question is critical, I believe. I want to roll up my sleeves with you an old-fashioned Bible study for the next few moments. Here's the question first. Won't know the question until we fill in the blanks. We certainly aren't going to find the answer until those blanks are completed. Let's go to the question first. Here it is. Would you fill it in, please? Does God have, here's the question, does God have a different standard for the final John the Baptist generation on earth than he has had for all the previous generations? Or to put it this way, does, is there rather, is there, and I've heard some writer, I came across one writer trying to make this point, is there a translation, write in translation please, is there a translation standard different from a resurrection standard? Which being interpreted means, one more restatement of the question, fill it in, does God require, here we go, does God require a higher standard for those who will be living when Jesus, Jesus returns 
then for those who have died before he returns, but who will be resurrected when he comes again. Are there two standards? Yes or no? We've got to find the answer. You say, listen, Dwight, it really doesn't matter to me. I mean, who cares? I'll tell you why I, w- I would retort. My rejoinder would be, look, if God has two different standards for his friends, one, li- one standard for his friends living just before Christ returns, another standard for all those who died before Jesus came. Look, at, given the times that we are living in, rather unsettling, rather unpredictable times, that very possibly... I realize the loophole in that word very possibly bear the telltale earmarks that the end of all things is at hand. Given that reality, and given the reality that this present generation has the very real potential, and the key word is potential, of being the last generation on earth, then why wouldn't we want to know, if God has two separate standards, why wouldn't we want to know what the standard would be for the generation living just before Jesus comes. Hence the question. We've got to find the answer. Go through the process with me, please, as we, as we move through the evidence. Open your Bible right now. Not to the Gospels where we've been for these last four sessions in this five-part mini-series. We've gone to the Gospels for the rather bold, bright colors, counter-cultural colors of the John the Baptist portrait. Let's not go to the Gospels today. Let's instead go to the Apocalypse, the Bible's last book. The colors will be just as bright. They will be just as bold. And by the way, you're going to note, just as countercultural, Because the Apocalypse does describe the John the Baptist generation. It does not call them the John the Baptist generation. It gives them another name. And in fact, the name is not a name. It is a number. Would you write the number in, please, in your study guide? The Apocalypse refers to the John the Baptist generation as the 144,000. Extremely countercultural portrait right here. You're finding uh, the Bible's last book, Book of Revelation. Let's go to Revelation chapter 14. For the next few moments, I want to reflect on this passage with you. Roll up your sleeves. We're going to do an old-fashioned Bible study today. doesn't hurt to have a Bible study in church. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. I'll be in the New Revised Standard. It's been a while since we've had the New Revised Standard in the pulpit, but I'm going to do that. Uh, Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Those of you watching on television, the NRSV will be on the screen. Let's go. Then I looked. John. This is not John the Baptist. This is John the Revelator. Then I looked. And there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with Him, here they are, were 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. I'm telling you what, ladies and gentlemen, extremely countercultural because the rest of human society also has something on the forehead, but it is not the name of God. Chapter 13, verse 16, it's called the mark of the beast. So we're talking radically countercultural, all right? Let's go to verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Verse 3. And they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. New song. Not the music of a fallen culture. It's going to be a new song that this particular generation is locked into. New song. All right, but there's more extreme counterculturalism. What, what, what verse am I getting ready for here? Verse 4. Thank you. It is these 
who have not defiled themselves with women, i.e. they are virgins. Now, it's all symbolism because we're talking radical countercultural now. If you go to chapter 18, verse 3, it says, All the nations of the world and all the kings have gone to bed with that hoary prostitute. These, whoever these are, extremely countercultural, they do not sleep with her. Okay? They are virgins. Now, there's more in that line, I believe. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. These follow the Lamb. Whoa! Extremely countercultural. Because if you go to chapter 13, verse 3, and it's, it says the whole world followed the beast. A demonic confederacy at the end of time. We're talking countercultural. We're talking John the Baptist generation. These follow the Lamb. Where, wherever He goes, one more line, they have been redeemed from humankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found. They are blameless in this rosy O'Donnell generation that is steeped in greed and cheating and bl- the blame. It wasn't me. It was never my fault. It was you. It was you. It was you. The most litigious society in the history of earth. We live in it. In a blame game society. Counter-cultural. No blame. No lie. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. There they are. God's one. Count them. God's 144,000. By the way... Don't forget, the number is symbolic. All right? You say, how do you know it's symbolic, Dwight? Piece of cake. Because they're also described as male virgin Jews. So if the number were literal, then all the rest would be literal. And God isn't limiting Himself to just male virgin Jews, now is He? No. So it's symbolic. Although, you've got to admit, isn't this true? Aren't there times when you take a look at human society and you scratch your head and you're beginning to think, you're thinking, you know what? I don't think God even has 144,000 loyal friends on this planet. The moment you start whistling that tune and playing that violin, you're in trouble because you're like, oh, pity poor me, Elijah. Who co- Remember Elijah who comes to God? Oh, God, I'm the only one left. And God looks down at Elijah and said, would you, would you blow your nose and dry your eyes? I have 7,000 other knees that are not marinated in this fallen culture. i got 7,000 others who have not kissed the gods of this pantheon. You're not alone, boy. So, buck up. Let's go. God's 144,000. There they are, ladies and gentlemen. Extremely countercultural. You got that right. John the Baptist generation. Yes, they are. They are the John the Baptist generation. But remember the question now. Here's the question. Does God have a different, read, higher standard for this generation right down here before Jesus comes than He's had for all His friends all the way back to Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel? A different standard. We have to check this out. What we've got to do is to go back to this apocalyptic list, moral qualifications. That's what we just read a moment ago. Let's examine these moral qualifications to determine if there is any biblical precedent for any of them. What we're going to do is we're going to start at the bottom of the list, all right? We'll start in verse 5 and work our way right back up to Revelation 14, verse 1. We'll go backwards. You really need your study guide now, and I hope, I hope your wrist is limber today. No tennis elbow. You're going to need to fly. Let's go. Write it in, please. We'll start at the bottom in verse 5. Here, here we go. Are they, 
the John the Baptist generation, the 144,000, are they the first to be blameless? We read that just a moment ago. Right in the word blameless. Are they the first to be blameless? Let's check it out. Would you write down, please, just while we're at it, write down a name. Write down the name Noah. Ever heard of Noah? Also living at the end of time. Noah. Take a look at Genesis chapter 6. Here is a Bible description of Noah. These are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless. There it is, blameless in his generation. And Noah walked with God. Whoa, there's one precedent. Write down another precedent while you're at it. Would you write down the name Abram or Abraham? Because God comes along to old Abram at the age of 99. Put that on the screen. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. I have one command for you. You must live blamelessly. Be blameless. Looks like God has expected this a long time ago. Let's put another name down. Would you write J-O-B? Job. How does Job 1 verse 1 read? There was once a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, please, this little insertion here. Please remember that blameless does not mean sinless. Because for all three of the men we have listed so far, while they were blameless, we have record of their sins. Blameless doesn't mean sinless. It means I belong Holy to God. And God looks at me and says, consider him blameless. Consider her the same. And by the way, is that just an old, old, old Testament expectation? Take a look at this. Ephesians chapter five. Look at this. Write down the word church, because here's what it says. Ephesians five twenty seven. So uh, Christ wants to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind, but holy and blameless. Christ in the New Testament calls for a church of people that is blameless. All right. Well, it looks like that category of that moral qualification has a precedent. Let's go to the next one. Are they the first not to write it in lie? So you were reading the passage backwards. Are they the first not to lie? Would you write in a name? Nathaniel. Some of you are named Nathan. A great name. Look at your Bible precedent. Here's Jesus speaking of Nathaniel. John 147. When Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him, he said of him, Whoa, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, no lie in his mouth. Looks like that standard has existed in the past with God's friends. Let's go to standard number three, moral qualification. Are they the first to follow the Lamb wherever He goes? Write down the name Enoch. We're just putting a little Bible Hall of Fame together, aren't we? Write down the name Enoch. Here's what Genesis 5 says about Enoch. Enoch walked with God and then he was no more. Enoch was a translation generation, by the way. Enoch lived until the second coming, as it were, and he went from this life, boom, to the next, never dying. He's the translation model and metaphor. He walked with God. Well, looks like that moral qualification is gone. How about this one? Are they the first to be pure? Right in the word pure. Morally as well as spiritually. Well, this is a no-brainer. But would you go ahead and jot his name down there by Genesis 39? Joseph. 
Write down the name Joseph. And then take a look at this. Take a look at this. This is Genesis 39, verse 10. And although Mrs. Potiphar spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not consent to lie beside her or to even be with her. I'm not going to be in that room alone with you, ma'am. I'm not going to ride in that car alone with you, sister. I am not even going to be with you alone. Joseph was pure. Is he an aberration? Oh, I think not. Morally, how about spiritually pure? Let's, would you write uh, these names? Uh, these? You can't put all the names up, so we'll just call them the three Hebrews. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Were they spiritually pure? Did they sleep? With the prostitute, that false system of worship. Did they sleep with her? Let's find out. O King Nebuchadnezzar, live forever. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These pay no heed to you, O King. They do not serve our gods. They do not worship the golden statue that you have set up. They will not bow down to the image of the beast. They will not receive the mark of the beast. They are countercultural. Now, I guess that I guess that little qualification has biblical precedent as well. Keep going. Come on. Are they the first to sing a new song? Write in the word new. And then would you write in the name, please, Moses? Are the 144,000 of John the Baptist generation the first? No. Look at Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses, this is after the Red Sea, comes thundering back. To its previous course, then Joseph and then Moses rather and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously horse and rider. He is thrown into the sea. Brand new song of deliverance. Revelation says there'll be a song called the song of Moses and the lamb. It's not a new song. Any more here? Oh, yep. I see another one. Are they the first to be sealed? Right in the word sealed. This text will come as a surprise to some of you. But would you write down God-fearing Jews? And then take a look at the text. God-fearing Jews. That's what you put in that blank. Now, here comes the text. Ezekiel 9. And the angel said to the messenger, Go through the city. Go through Jerusalem, the spiritual headquarters, and put a mark on the foreheads of those. Go through campus, will you? Go through this campus and put a mark on the foreheads of the students and faculty and community members who groan and sigh. Talking about countercultural, ladies and gentlemen. God-fearing Jews got the mark right here. Right here. Are they the only ones to get marked? Nope. We can find that in the New Testament. Take a look at this. Let's put up uh, God-fearing Christians first. And then look at this. Ephesians 1.13. In Christ... You also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in Him, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. Marked! There it is. Marked. Is that new? Well, I guess we'll have to give that one up too. That has precedent. Let's, I hear the page is turning. Turn to that center panel now. Our, you know, I threw in another text. Surprise, surprise. I threw in another text. Okay, 1 through 5 describes the 144,000. There's also verse 12. Verse 12 is a simple little text. Here, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. That's, that's the generation. Okay, so let's take that. Do they obey the commandments? Would you write that in, please? 
They, are they the first to obey the commandments of God? Write a name down, just in case you didn't know this story. I love this one, Daniel 6. Write down the name Daniel, would you please? Because the king says, anybody who prays to anybody, anything or any God else but me for the next 30 days, you are, going, you are going to be fed to the lions. Oh, there's no greater story than that one, is there? But here they come. Here come the little snitches. Reporting to King Darius, isn't it? Yeah, Darius. All right. Then they responded to the king. O king, live forever. Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the interdict you have signed. But he is saying his prayers three times a day because the first commandment says, You shall have no other gods before me. And he will obey the commandments of God even if it means his execution, which it meant. So you have Daniel. You have a host of them. There's one last line, and that is, here are they that keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith. Would you write that in, please? Faith of Jesus. Do we have anybody who held fast to the faith to his dying day? Put down the name Paul, and then let's read his last will and testament called 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy Let's put it on the screen. Chapter 4, verse 7. Look at this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have... Read it out loud with me. I have kept the faith. Let's do that again. I have kept the faith. The rest of culture went that way. Alone. I went this way, O oh God. I have kept the faith. I'm about to die. And he was beheaded. But I have kept the faith. Is that unique to a final generation? It is not unique. Not unique at all. Ladies and gentlemen, there it is. You've seen the list. Now the question repeats itself. Is the John the Baptist generation held to a different or higher standard at the end of time than all of God's friends and saints and forgiven sinners through the course of history? Tell me the answer to that. Are they held to a higher standard? Yes or no? Call it out. Yes or no? No. The an- you're not quite sure, are you? The answer is no. No. Does it not seem... Write this in, please. Does it not seem clear that the 144,000 God's final John the Baptist generation share... Write it in. Share the righteous heritage and high calling of God's people throughout sacred history. Come on, ladies and gentlemen. Based on the chart you just compiled, it is clear. God does not have a separate, bifurcated standard. Nope. One standard from the beginning to the end. And so would you write it down, please? The standard is unchanged. Unchanged. However... And this is a huge however. There are two significant, write them down, write, write it down, uniquenesses. How many cues in uniquenesses? Well, you'll have to look at the screen. There are two significant uniquenesses about the 144,000, the John the Baptist generation, that will be unparalleled, unparalleled in human history. Jot these down, please. There are only two of them. Uniqueness number one. They will be unique in number. Write that down, please. Unique 
in number. 144,000, that's just a symbol. But that means that there will literally be thousands upon thousands. Are you getting this? Thousands upon thousands. Sometimes you get to thinking that there is nobody but you in that office that has a heart for God. Nobody but you in that dormitory room that has a heart for God. Nobody but you in that company that has a heart for God. Get off of it, please, Jesus says. i got 7,000 more. Literally thousands upon thousands who at the end, way down here, at just before Jesus comes, at the end of time, they will rise up to God's high call to radical, countercultural holiness. There will be thousands of them in every nation, kindred, tribe, tongue, and people. You see, here's the difference. Here's the difference. Instead of an isolated Enoch over here, or an all-by-himself Noah over there, or a rare Daniel over here, or Esther, or Ruth, instead of just these little pockets, God's going to have, would you write this in please? A whole generation. Write those two words in. He's going to have a whole generation of Daniels. Hey, hey guys, look at is this? Look at how many of you have taken history. You have to take history here sometime, don't you? You've taken history. You know how it is in history. A revolution, a revolution, while it will begin with one, true. A revolution, while it will begin with one, will never end with one, because it'll never go. Our thirteen colonies. It took some bold patriots in the Boston Harbor. Isn't that right? With that T. It just took somebody to stand up and say, enough is enough. And then like wildfire, more drawn in, more drawn in. The history of every kingdom and nation on earth tells the same story. You start with a handful here and you start as God has with a handful there. But by the time that kingdom comes to its own at the end, it will not be an isolated handful. It will be a global movement. By the thousands. None of this little snively, I, we alone are left. Rubbish. God will have them. Thousands of them. Okay, that's the point. God will have, oh, I see another fill in the blank here. God will have a generation of Job's. Write that in, please. A generation of Job's who will cry out, even though he slays me, yet will I trust him. A generation of Job's. Say, oh, Dwight, you don't know that for sure. Is that really in Scripture? Yes, it is. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they overcame the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life even in the face of death. They're willing to die in the end rather than sin. By the way, it's die rather than sin. I know that's very much politically incorrect in some circles today. I mean, come on, you're going to have to sin. You're just going to don't die rather than sin. No, they will rather die than sin. What is sin? It is a transgression of God's commandments. And they will, just like Daniel, go ahead, kill me. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, go ahead, make my day. Throw me in. Throw them in. Just so that you and I would know that should the day ever come to us when we are faced with the same, the same God in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be with you and will be with me. Yeah, no, I'd rather die than sin. Some of us would rather sin than die. No, there'll be a generation at the end and you are being called to be a part of it. 
All right. Okay, so that's a... No, we have to fill out one more before we go to uniqueness number two, the other one. Okay, there it is. God will have literally tens of thousands of men, women, young adults, senior citizens and children all over the face of a crumbling earth who will have, write it in, who will have His name in their foreheads and His character in their hearts. All right, uniqueness number one, they will be unique in number and uniqueness number two, they will be unique in history. Write it down, please. A most unique placement in earth time and sacred history. Get this. Get this, will you? They will be the only generation in the history of the universe. The only generation that will live through. And that's the key word. Live through the final gavel of the cosmic judgment. <clears throat> they'll, they'll be alive when that gavel strikes. Whoa. Very unique. Look, look, Revelation 14, 7. What does it say? The message of this generation, this, this John the Baptist generation, their message is we're in the judgment now. This is it. This is the judgment. Yeah. And by the way, when that gavel falls, this is just an aside. When that gavel falls, all hell, it seems, will break loose I'm not sharing this to try to intimidate you or scare me. The Bible, however, is absolutely clear. Right here, right here, boom, when that gavel goes down, right at that moment, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, take a look at this. At that time, Michael, the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great prince, the protector of your people shall arise and there shall be a time of anguish such as has never occurred heard since nations first came into existence. But I got good news for you. At that time, the followers of the same God of Daniel will be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. When the books are closed and the judgment is declared over, it is done. Every name still in the book. Every name still in the book. Not to worry. Do not be afraid. Oh, no. It's, it's, it's not going to be a party, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, when the, whole, when the Spirit of Jesus is withdrawn from the earth, can you imagine what this earth would be like? Spirit of Jesus is withdrawn. You have four angels in Revelation 7, and all four go, shoo, let go, the winds. Now, weren't these winds something this last week? Weren't they something? Now, the angels, metaphorically, they let go of the final destroying winds. And you know why it is? It's Satan's one moment. He has pleaded for this moment. Let me be prince of this earth and rule it without interference. And at last the universe will see a planet run by Lucifer without divine intervention. It will not be a pretty scene. It will be Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace in spades. That's the point. God wants to prepare a people. To make ready a people prepared for the coming of the Lord. <laughs> Which means, my dear friends, this is not namby-pamby time. This is get ready for the end time. That's this time. Anybody comes and tells you otherwise, don't believe it. That's the hiss. Of one who has always sought to lull to sleep God's chosen generation. Don't believe it. We've heard too many of those siren songs.
And because of that, would you fill this in, please? This, John the Baptist generation, will be a day of atonement people. Yeah, you go ahead and write it in. A day of at-one-ment people. What kind of people are a day of at-one-ment? That's just, that's just ancient liturg- uh, a liturgical metaphor for judgment people. What kind of people are a judgment people? Take a look at the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 30 in the Old Testament. For on this day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you from all your sins. You shall be clean before the Lord, I know what you said. Oh, come on, Dwight, please. What is this old, dusty, old testament, old covenant kind of focus? Don't you know that we are New Testament, New Covenant? We are post Calvary, and life has changed. Has it really? I want to answer me this. Paul, you heard of Paul, haven't you? Paul, is he old or New Testament? Oh, come on, he's new. Old or New New Covenant? Is he post Calvary? post-Calvary, then why did Paul, what did Paul mean when he wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1? I'm not going to have you read the screen now. You take that Bible. Take a look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. We need to get a run at it, so we'll pick it up in chapter 6, verse 14. Turn the pages in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's pick it up in verse 14. Verse 14. Paul is writing to a New Testament post-Calvary Christian community of faith. That ought to include you and me. All right. Verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. Do not be mismatched. I know there's another culture out there, Paul is writing. I know there is another culture, but you don't have to be mismatched with that culture. And now he asks, get this, he asks five, count them, five rhetorical questions. What's a rhetorical question? A rhetorical question means the answer is already known by the reader. It's just a no-brainer. He asks five of them in a row. He's making a point about marinating in a fallen, bankrupt culture. He's making a point. Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. Four, here comes question number one. What partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Here comes rhetorical question number two. Or what fellowship is there between light and darkness? Well, you know, I want to do a little bit of light on the weekends, uh, on Sabbath, but I want to do a little bit of dark on Saturday night. Is that okay? What fellowship is there between light and darkness? Figure it out. Are you a child of light or are you a child of the darkness? Whichever nation you belong to, stick with it. That was Elijah's point, by the way. You go limping back and forth. Paul's sounding like Elijah here. What fellowship has light with darkness? Number three. What agreement does Christ have with Beliar? Old name for the devil. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this in his message. Does Christ go strolling with the devil? Isn't that good? Does Christ go strolling with the devil? People have come to me and say, you know, people wonder, well, are, are, you know, you, you dealt with television. You've dealt with diet. You're going to deal with music? Nope, I'm not. You have a mind. You have a heart. Use it. Ask yourself the question, does Christ go strolling with the devil? You decide. 
Church does not exist to be some sort of inquisitory, listing institution. No, you just decide, you decide, you decide. Five rhetorical questions. Does Christ go strolling with the devil? Or what does a believer share with an unbeliever? He's not talking about what, does it, what can a believer share with, a, with an unbeliever. You share the gospel. Of course you share. But why do you, why do you immerse yourself and marinate yourself in an unbeliever's culture? Why? Can you explain to me why you would want to do that, Paul asks? Final rhetorical question. What agreement has the temple of God, that would be church, with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will live in them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 17. Therefore, come out from that fallen, marinated culture. You come out. Come out. Come out and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch nothing unclean. Then, oh, the old NRSV is some. There'd be some theologians who would rise up and say, oh boy, that's not politically correct. Are you saying that it's, it's kind of conditional? That then, after we've done that, then God says, I'll be your father? Well, your argument is with the translators, including Bruce Metzger of the New Revised Standard Version. Then, you come out, then I will welcome you. And I will be your father and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now comes verse 1 of chapter 7. Since we have these promises, by the way, they're all Old Testament. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement. By the way, do you know what that Greek word for cleanse right there in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1? Jot this down on the back of your study guide. The same word in the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint for the Day of Atonement cleansing. The same Greek word for Daniel 8.14. And then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Same word. Same experience. Same passionate appeal. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and of spirit, making holiness perfect in the fear of God. Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of water. Fear God and give glory to Him. That's it. Ladies and gentlemen, Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 has to belong to a generation at the very end. End of time. And anybody who comes to you and says, you know what, my man, my man, you can do God's culture once in a while, but you got to live. you got to live. Anybody who tells you that you can wed the cultures, fallen and heavenly, you can blend the kingdoms. Anyone who tells you, lying. No one can serve two masters. It's impossible. 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 So you're going to have to choose. I'm not going to choose for you. You choose for yourself. You choose. You can't be in both. Only one kingdom. Which will it be? All right, write it down. Ladies and gentlemen, a very passionate New Testament call. We just read it to a very compelling Old Testament reality. Here comes a divine call for a cleansed. Write it in, please. A cleansed and holy people. The 144,000 will be, write it in please, a final generation that finally takes that call utterly seriously. Radical, countercultural holiness in the name of Jesus Christ. The John the Baptist generation. By the way, C.S. Lewis. I think C.S. Lewis might have a word to say to us right now. C.S. Lewis described 
the and I put his words on the screen, the sweet poison of the false infinite. This generation at the end of time refuses to drink from that well, the sweet poison of the false in infinite. What is a false infinite? It's worship, worshiping the temporal as if it were eternal. My pleasure now, I'm going to worship this moment as if it's going to last forever. It does not last forever. Our fallen culture's obsession with sexual gratification, the sweet poison of the false infinite. To the place, get this. The pornography industry today in the United States. In the United States, the pornography industry grosses more than all combined professional sports in a year. Pornography. More money than all of professional sports. That's all of football. That's all of basketball. That's all of hockey. That's all of baseball. That's all of whatever else. Pornography rakes in more because American men and American women are hungry to slake their thirst with the sweet poison of the false infinite. This moment will not last forever. And in two hours, you'll be sorry. How many within the community of faith are going to the same poisoned well to drink and imbibe. Put it up on the screen again. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and of spirit, making holiness perfect in the fear of God. Radical, countercultural holiness. You may call them the John the Baptist generation. You may call them the 144,000. They are unique in number. They are unique in time and history. And I remind you, they will be the only generation that will ever live through that somber moment when God solemnly declares these words to the listening universe. He who is unjust. Lock them in, Gabriel. Lock the whole human race in. Right now, what she is, she remains. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. She who is filthy, let her be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. She who is holy, let her be holy still. Lock them in. Only generation in history. No other generation. Actually, I correct that. No other generation except for two. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah. When God locked in an entire generation into its irrevocable moral state and then rendered judgment. And he said, oh, by the way, as it was in the days of Lot, when God locked in an entire city into its irrevocable moral state and then, boom, judgment. Except for those two. This will be the only generation that has ever lived for the most solemn words of Scripture. And isn't it something that Scripture ends with those words? The 144,000. Unique in number, unique in history. I, hey, how can I be a part of them? It's very simple. Very simple. Embrace the confession of John the Baptist. I want to end with this. John the Baptist. Do you know what? Listen. The last 
the last recorded words of John the Baptist before he was incarcerated by King Herod. His final words. Imprisoned for one year in the fortress of Machaerus and then beheaded one starry, starry night at the hands of a vengeful queen. Hell hath no fury like an unrequited woman. And so was slaughtered the world's greatest prophet. Want to be a part of the John the Baptist generation? I end with this. Would you write it, please, into your study guide? John 3, the last words he ever spoke before jail. John 3, verse 30, speaking of Jesus, he must increase. And I, I must decrease. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Christ must increase. But I must decrease. The last recorded words of the unfettered John. Christ must increase, but I must decrease. Please, O oh God, more and more of Jesus in my life and less and less of me, I beg you. Or as one writer expressed it, may I take ten looks at Christ, O oh God, for every look I take at me. Ten to one. Make my preoccupation with Jesus ten to one, ten times with Him, once with me. It is a paradox, this line out of Desire of Ages describing John at the end of his life. Put it on the screen for you and in your study guide. Looking in faith to the Redeemer, John had risen to the height of self-abnegation, which means self-renunciation. That means going down. He went to the height of going down. There's the, therein lies the paradox. The soul of the prophet, emptied of self, was filled with the light of the divine. He must increase. I must decrease. By the way, by the way, same credo, same credo for the 144,000. It reads there in verse 4, And they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They are a Christ saturated generation. Same credo. Christ must increase. I must decrease. Same prayer. May I take ten looks at Christ, O God, for every look I take at me. He must increase. I must decrease. I want to end with this poem. You have it there at the end of your study guide. Someone sent me an old hymn a few years ago. This composed by Theodore Monad. May I read this to you? Oh, the bitter pain and sorrow that a time could ever be when I proudly said to Jesus, all of self and none of thee. Yet he found me. I beheld him bleeding on the accursed tree and my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of thee. Day by day, His tender mercy, healing, helping, full and free, brought me lower while I whispered, less of self and more of Thee. Higher than the highest heavens, deeper than the deepest sea. Lord, Thy love, oh, I pray that Thy love would conquer so that one day, I can say, none of self and all of thee. You know, I can't even read the way that ends. It isn't true in my life. I can't say that yet. But oh, my dear friends, uh, don't you want that? Don't you want that to be your experience?
to be all, all for Him. None of me. None of self. All of the you. You must increase, Jesus. And I must decrease. I don't know of any other way. Guys, it's over. I don't know of any other way for the John the Baptist generation to possibly fulfill this mission to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Then that credo of John's and the 144,000. Christ must increase and I must decrease. What if we came to this moment, you and I, and we committed ourselves to this? Look, there's no way I can commit to this statement. I mean, how can I commit? I, I can't carry that out in my own strength anyway. But would you commit to this? Would you be willing to ask Jesus to do whatever it takes in my life, you say that for yourself. Lord, do whatever it takes in my life to bring this John the Baptist confession to reality. Would you, would you be willing to pray that? Do whatever it takes in my life. Would you? I mean, that's, that's, a, pretty, that's a pretty solemn prayer. Because He will. But it's time. Look, we're right here. It's time. If you want to pray that prayer, Lord Jesus, please do whatever it takes in my life. I can't answer for her, him, my life. If you would like to send that prayer, I want to invite you to stand. And by standing, saying, that is my prayer. Do whatever it takes in my life. Whatever it takes. Please, Lord Jesus. I want to be ready when you come. I want to be ready.